This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, let's see. A week ago, we celebrated Thanksgiving. Unless, of course, you were in Atlanta or Detroit. And you celebrate the end of your NFL season. But after Thanksgiving, we had Black Friday, followed by Small Business Saturday, followed by Cyber Monday. Gooseman, what's next this week? Well, it could be Black Thursday for the Cowboys. They're back on top of the (laughs) NFC East, albeit precariously with a 6-5 record. And look who's coming to town Thursday night, the New Orleans Saints. Yeah, well, Ronnie, you know, maybe the NFL should have a theme for each week, like college football does. You know, like last week it was, what, rivalry week? Don't look more like hate week at the UNC NC State game, or maybe the Florida-Florida State game. It's unbelievable. Do you have a suggestion for this weekend, a little theme? I do. Uh, how about this? <clears throat> turnover Sunday, because there's been a lot of turnover from a year ago. Uh, little known fact, last year's final four teams are a collective 22-21 in one with five weeks wow. left in the regular season. Jags, DOA, Eagles, life support. Vikings, on the ropes. Patriots, not what they used to be. Turnover Sunday. That's the kind of stat I would expect from Dr. Data. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I probably stole his notes when he wasn't looking. <laughs> oh, Ron, how about this? How about take your favorite Talk of Fame Network host to your local barbecue joint week? How about that? Would that work? That would be good. That would be called Rubbed Ribs Ritual Sunday. And I'm for it. <laughs> <laughs> If we have that, where are you going in Kansas City? Where are you going? You go to Bryant's, where are you going? I'm going to Bryant's. Always go to Bryant's. Go to Bryant's. Okay. Well, we're not taking anyone anywhere, not yet at least, but we do have a couple of Hall of Fame semifinalists we might be taking to Atlanta in January for debate, and that's safety's Libra Butler of Green Bay and Darren Woodson of the Cowboys. Now, I'm not sure we can take both of them, not with safety's Ed Reed and John Lynch in the mix, but we sure would love to. Um, we also have Hall of Fame voter John McClain of the Houston Chronicle to talk about the legacy of former Texans owner Robert McNair, who passed away last week. And Gooseman, um, that was a huge loss for the NFL. Bob McNair, you've known him, we've known him. He was one of the Giants among current owners. Yeah, he was a traditional NFL owner. He wasn't hands-on. He hired good people, then gave them the freedom and the space to do their jobs. He didn't need his thumbprint on everything. He was old school. Yeah, he was also nice to reporters like us. (laughs) Anyway, um, very interested to hear what John has to say about that. We've got a lot to get to, and we will. But first, yeah, first we're going to break for commercial. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, I see where misinformation was crowned Dictionary.com's Word of the Year, guys. And, and, and I think that's appropriate, considering the year that just went by. But I could have sworn that Ron was going to get Ty Long to the Pro Football Hall of Fame last sure. February. And, and Ron, yeah, you, you made a great I swore case. too, after the vote. Yeah. <laughs> But apparently I and maybe you, Ron, were the victims of misinformation. What do you think? Uh, I did so, and I fear the same could happen again this year uh, with the Hall of Fame vote. I keep hearing how Champ Bailey is a first ballot Hall of Famer. <laughs> Only Champ he has is his name. Lies, more rings, more picks, more big plays and big games, more tackles, more forced fumbles. Champ has more Pro Bowls. So you want the Pro Bowl record holder? Put him in. Oh, I'm sold. I, I'm sold. You got my vote, Ron. You got it right now. <laughs> Um, okay, well, guys, l- let's forget about Dictionary.com because they don't sponsor our show, all right? I, I want to hear what you guys have to say about, well, let's say, let's just say NFL.com had to come up with a word of the year for this season, okay? Goose, let's start with you. What do you think that word would be? Over. 
hyphen celebration. After every touchdown, there's a lengthy choreographed end zone celebration. After every tackle, there's a chest bump. After every sack, there's a dance. After every complete pass, there's a defensive back wagging his finger. Whatever happened, it just played the game. Yeah, good question. And after every celebration, Goose, there's a camera in the end zone filming it so they can put it on ESPN or the Red Zone or whatever, the NFL Network. Ronnie, what word do you have for this season? Uh, well, uh, mine is a hyphenated word. Instant classic with a hyphen. <laughs> Everything is an instant classic. Turn 11 including man. the show. Including exactly. the show. <laughs> that is an instant classic. Turn 11-man football into seven-on-seven seven drills with no touching. Instant classic. Score 100 points because no one can play defense. Instant classic. Definition. We suck and we know it. Instant classic. <laughs> Well, I, I'm right with you, Ron, because I was going to go with, it's a simple word, defenseless, because that's what this league's well, really become. I mean, one week we have Eli Manning completing, what, 17 of 18 passes. The next, Philip Rivers hit 28 of 29, including the first 25. Now we have Marcus Mariota, for God's sakes, on Monday night, completing his first 16 and a losing effort. Goose, ridiculous. That's the new NFL. You don't turn the ball over. You don't throw in completions, and you still lose. <laughs> yeah, well, I agree with you. But you know what, guys? I'll tell you something else that's ridiculous. Gets under my skin. College football overtime system. And I bring that up because in the wake of that 54-51 Big 12 game we had a week ago in L.A. between the Rams and the Chiefs, we had a 74-72, seven-overtime thriller. Yeah, instant classic, Ron. Between LSU and Texas A&M that ended just before I think Ron and I got up Sunday morning. Exactly. And, and, and the worst part of it, guys, they count the stats. They do. I know. Inflation is on the rise in the economy, and it's on the rise in the NFL. I mean, things keep going like this, and the passion numbers will be, if they aren't already, like the German mark of the Weimar Republic in 1923. One dollar <laughs> worth 1.2 billion marks. Passing yardage and completions are now as much, worth as much as the German mark after World War One. Guys, I no longer care about offense stats at any level, high school, college, or pro. They're all artificial. The pendulum has swung so far away in the defense that all these stats are meaningless. They aren't the result of the ability of the player, but rather the style of the game being played today. I couldn't agree with you more, because uh, quick question for you, though. Which system do you prefer? The, the current system, the previous overtime system? I'm talking about the NFL. Current system, previous overtime system, or something else? I like the term sudden death. First team to score wins. That forces teams to build a defense as well as an offense, because if you lose the toss, you have to stop your opponent to have a chance of victory. Ooh, top that, well, Ron. Uh, as I get older, Goose, I like the term sudden death a lot less than I used to. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I still do, I still do like it, and I think they should start it the way the XFL started there, the uh, the coin flip. No coin flip. Scrum for the ball. you got to beat the other guy up to get the ball. That would be great. Fight to the like death. That. I like that. Fight to the death. Okay. Well, as most people know, we had that list of 25 semifinals for the Hall of Fame's class of 2019 that we promoted last week and was released by the Hall of Fame, and there are eight D. B's, including five safeties on it. And Goose, man, I know you love your defense. And Ron, I'm just guessing Goose might vote all defensive players if he had the chance. But Goose, um, how many DBs do you actually think we're going to take with us to Atlanta's finals? I'll say five. Two cornerbacks and three safeties. Reed and Bailey, of course, are the locks. I like Law as the other corner. And Butler and Lynch probably as the other safeties. Okay. All right. And, and Ron, I was going to ask you about, well, frankly, our two guests today. We have Leroy Butler and Darren Woodson. Right. Uh, what do you think this means for them? Well, I think overall it's not good because, uh, you know, we've seen this uh, play out before. Um, 
you know, when you have too many guys at the same position, they cancel each other out. Nobody really gets mm-hmm. enough support from one side or the other. Uh, and the other thing is, as Goose says all the time, you know, latest is the greatest and offense rules, you know, and that's unfortunately starting to spill into Hall of Fame voting uh, uh, more than, than I think any of us like. Yeah, no, that's true. Nevertheless, Ron, we, we have... 13 defensive players, 9 offensive players. Yeah, I was stunned. And 3 coaches, yeah, me too, on this list. And Goose, I'll start with you. What's your guess on the breakdown of finalists from this group? I'll say 6 offense, 8 defense, 1 coach. You add Johnny Robson, senior nominee, and that's 9 on defense. And yet, there'll still be more offensive guys in Shrine and defenses. Oh, okay, Ron. Oh, uh, you know, I, don't, I don't really know, but I hope we bring, uh, uh, you know, Fourth, two kinds of players. Ones that have been waiting, and we keep saying, "Oh yeah, this guy's a Hall of Famer. That guy's a Hall of Famer." Next year, uh, and I, I want to see that, and I like to see some uh, more than a few new names in the room to kind of get mm-hmm. things going. Look, you, all three of us know <clears throat> whether we choose to say it publicly or not that there are some names on that list that they've got enough support to get in the room, but they don't have enough support to get out of the room right, ever. Right. So right. It's, it's probably wise to move on to those guys and give some other guys a shot. Here comes the judge. Well, there's a guy who may one day wind up in the hall, and it's Aaron, not Clark, judge, unfortunately. Nevertheless, I am here to make a Hall of Fame case for someone I wrote about this week on our website, and that's TalkOfFameNetwork.com. And that player, or former player, is the 49ers' first-ever quarterback, Frankie Albert. Lefty. Now, in seven pro seasons that went from 1946 through 1952, Frankie Albert threw 115 touchdown passes for nearly 11,000 yards, and he ran for 27 more scores. He was a four-time All-Pro or All-League selection, a co-league MVP, and better than every quarterback in the league outside of Hall of Famer autogram. The problem, of course, is that league was the All-American Football Conference, not the NFL. And the AAFC is where Frank Albert played from 1946 to 1949. Then, when the 49ers were absorbed, as was Cleveland, by the, the NFL, he quarterbacked them in 1950, where he was a Pro Bowl choice, and was joined by Y.A. Tittle in 1951. But this isn't the NFL Hall of Fame we're talking about, guys. It's the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And how can you not consider the case of Frankie Albert? He ran the first T-formation offense at Stanford under Clark Shaughnessy and then reportedly invented the bootleg of the NFL with the 49ers. So, I mean, let's face it, he was an innovator. And he was so successful that in an era when throwing a football was more like, as Ron says, tossing around a watermelon. He had 56 touchdown passes in two years. That would be 48 and 49. He also punted with a 48.2-yard average in 1949. And he played defense. No, no, he never won a league title, okay? But that's because the 49ers were in the same division as Cleveland with the Browns not only winning all four AAFC championships, but going 52-4-3 and three during that time. Well, guess what? Two of those losses, they were Frankie Albert and the 49ers, including one in 1949 that ended a year-and-a-half unbeaten streak for Cleveland and where Frankie Albert threw five touchdown passes. He hasn't been discussed by the Hall, and he's never been a semifinalist, and I don't think anything's going to change there, unfortunately, but I'd hope it would someday because Frankie Albert was a pioneer who was too good to ignore. Okay, Clark, the bulk of his stats obviously came in the All-America Conference. Can you compare the caliber of that competition with that of the USFL, another league, the stats don't count? Well, um, I'd say overall, Goose, I, I, I can't only because I didn't see them play, but I do know this. It, it certainly was right there within that division, and that division had the Cleveland Browns in it. Um, the Cleveland Browns were the toast of that division. San Francisco is just a step behind him. And what happened when Cleveland went to the NFL, Goose? 
They went 58-13-1 the next six years, and they went to the championship game each season, winning three of those championships. So I'd say, yeah, that team was pretty good, and the team that San Francisco had to beat was every bit as good as any team in the NFL. Unfortunately, 49ers had to play in the same division. Anyway, maybe we can get Frankie into Canton. I don't know, but... Can we let Lord Albert out of the can, Ron? Lord Albert, let him out. <laughs> I love making those cold calls on Halloween. <laughs> you have Lord Albert in the end. No, Prince Albert, whatever it was. Anyway, glad that's done. Up ahead, we have Hall of Fame voter John McLean on the legacy of the Texans, Bob McNair. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, as most of you know, the Houston Texans and the NFL really lost more than an owner last weekend when Texans owner Bob McNair passed away at the age of 81. He was kind. He was generous, he was smart, and he was a voice of resolve and reason. And I know that because Hall of Fame voter John McClain of the Houston Chronicle, who was close to Robert McNair, wrote all of that and more in a wonderful tribute to him following his death. Now, John's a close friend of ours as well and has been kind enough to join us by phone from Houston. John, first of all, welcome back. Thanks, guys, for having me as always. John, I guess my initial question is this. Um, did Bob McNair's passing catch you by surprise? I know his health had suffered the past five years. I think, I'm not sure, but I think he had skin cancer. But w- were you prepared for the announcement of his death? I was. He had two forms of skin cancer. He had leukemia. He had been battling it since uh, for at least five years. I did a big story on him uh, about after a year about what he'd been going through in 2014 in which uh, they had to cut him open from the back of his ear down to his shoulder. He said the radiation was the worst thing he'd ever done. He had to have skin grafts, plastic surgery, multiple operations. He was thought it was gone. It returned. He was in and out of the hospital. So we knew it was coming. It was just a matter of time. He was 81, and he fought a very courageous battle and, of course, died Friday night. And the Texans had a moving tribute. I was really proud of the Chronicle, all the stories we wrote. Uh, the tributes to him. They let they let four or five of us write personal memories. I wrote two of them on Saturday and Sunday, and then I did a big story on Cal McNair and the transition with him running the franchise after his dad's death. And it was a very somber time here, as you guys can imagine. And they had a moving tribute before the game, and then they got off to an 0-10 start. And I'm thinking, man, they're going to blow this game, and and uh, they're supposed to be winning one for Bob. And then they did. And he would have been embarrassed about all the attention he got, but he sure would have been excited about that victory over the former Oilers. Well, no kidding. And you're right about the tribute. It was uh, it was terrific. I mean, I saw parts of it on Monday night's telecast, but uh, I'm just wondering, because you were there, how emotional was that for the Texans or for you? Well, it was emotional uh, for everybody the way they did it. They had the... the uh, choir from Texas A&M singing Amazing Grace. To me, Amazing Grace and Taps are the two saddest songs that I've ever heard. And then they were playing all the on the video board, the tribute to Bob while they were singing. The lights were out. People were holding up lights and signs, and it was very sad. They did it right before game time, so they got right into the game, and I think that was probably good. And um, and I and, uh, felt terrible for his family, especially his wife, Jen. She was not able to be at the game, and but all the other kids, grandkids, they were all there. And I know he would have been very proud of the victory and also proud of uh, the, the people that came to salute him. 
John McNair, as you know, owned horses long before he owned a football team. So what was his first love, football or horses? Well, his first love was baseball and basketball. He was born in Tampa. He grew up in North Carolina. The Cubs actually drafted him and offered him a contract at a lower level, and he said no, he was going to college, and he went to South Carolina. So he played baseball and basketball, but he always loved football. And um, he he came to Houston with his wife, Janice, in 1960, two years after they graduated from uh, South Carolina. And they were so poor, they had to put their baby in a drawer because they couldn't afford a crib. And he had $700. His last $700 went to um, starting a car rental company. And then he had a truck rental. He went broke. He went bankrupt on a number of businesses and paid all his creditors back. And he was a Democrat when he came to Houston. That's shocking to me because he's been one of the biggest Republican contributors in the country. And he met George Bush in 1964. And they became friends. And he became a Republican. And then when he got wealthy in the 80s, he wanted to own an NFL team. And he met Paul Tagliabue at the Astrodome in Bud Adams' suite in the early 90s. And he expressed interest in uh, wanting to own a team. And Bud backed him. And Tagliabue, the league, vetted him. They liked him. The finance committee went through everything. And they tried to get him interested in Miami, Washington, St. Louis. And when they gave L.A. the exclusive negotiating period in 99, competing with Houston, they asked him if he'd like to own that team in L.A. And he said, no. He said, I am a homer for Houston. And they had he had the money, $700 million, a stadium plan, backing of the politicians and the business leaders. And he was confident he was going to get the team. And, of course, he did. Okay, on to football again. How much confidence do you have in Cal McNair in the direction he takes the Titans? Cal is 58. He uh, came to Houston from Fort Worth uh, after he got divorced and was his dad's right-hand man from the get-go. And I used to tell Cal all the time when Bob was doing interviews, I said, I hope you're watching because your dad is the kind of owner everybody would like their owner to be. Unassuming billionaire, genuine, never lied, never cursed, always available. You could call him at home. He wouldn't always talk on the record, but he would talk. He was polite. You know, you guys never saw him turn down an interview at an owner's meeting. And he did that because he was the, the kind of guy he was. And so Cal watched him closely. Cal was really close with his dad. And he is very unassuming, and he's very um, no-knee-jerk no reactions with Cal, just like that way with Bob. They both... Um, they both um, Let's see. Bob, Cal thinks a lot like Bob did. He's patient. You know, a lot of people want Gary Kubiak fired after a 6-10 and 10 season. He didn't, and they rewarded him with two division titles and playoff victories. People wanted O'Brien fired after last season, 4-12 record. McNair honored him with a four-year extension and hired Brian Gain, and Cal was right there every step of the way. And so I don't think – I think it will be a smooth transition, but you guys know you never know for sure until somebody's in that position. Can they make the tough decisions? Like his dad, he wants to be well-informed. He goes to practice. He talks to the coach and the GM, but he pays people to make those decisions. Jamie Roots, the president, will continue to run the administrative side. Brian Gain, the GM, will continue to run the personnel side. And uh, and that's the way Cal McNair plans to run it the same way his daddy did. You know, John, one of my, you know, everybody's got memories of, of these uh, fellows in different uh, situations. My memory of Bob McNair will always be 
uh, when he showed up at the owners' meeting with that mock-up of the stadium when he was still in the in the fight to whether or not he was going to get the franchise. Paid seventy-five grand for it, and he had that VIP media parking sign right there in front of the stadium. So I'm just wondering, other than yourself, who gets that media VIP parking these days? That was the greatest thing I ever saw. Uh, I remember one time at a Super Bowl going back down to the media room about two in the morning to sketch the papers to see if I'd missed any notes. And there in the media room was Bob McNair with his model of the stadium, which he had paid seventy-five grand for, and had truck from San Mateo, California, to Florida, and he was doing interviews with a Japanese TV station about his stadium, and they would translate what he said into Japanese. And I thought, man, there's not another owner to be down here doing this. I remember one time we were in Palm Beach at the meetings, and you guys may remember this. McNair told me he said, uh, "You think." that the writers would like to go on a, a dinner cruise on my boat. I said, what kind of boat? He said, oh, just my boat. I've got uh, anchored out in the water. And I said, uh, how many? He goes, oh, I think we can handle 48. I said, that's not a boat. That's a yacht. So I think they took 48 ups out there. And uh, I remember John Zarnesky and Peter King were galing them with stories down below. And as everybody left, I stayed. Bob goes, I don't know why the other owners don't like y'all. That was fun and interesting. I said, you didn't play a game. Yeah, you wait till you lose a few games and you'll understand. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You'll hate us too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, um, on one sort of the team-related question, uh, although it relates to McNair in a way, you know, he's, as you uh, pointed out, he stuck with uh, Bill O'Brien when when a lot of people uh, uh, not only stuck with him. I mean, he doubled down on him, and uh, now here they are in an eight-game role uh, this season. Uh, are they the second best team in the AFC? Do you think? And uh, they oppose? Are they a threat to the Chiefs and the Patriots? No, I don't think they're the second best team. I didn't. I picked them to go ten and six, win a wild card. They've exceeded my expectations, mainly after that 0-3 start when I wrote them off, even though they lost by seven three and five. But um, I could see them winning the division, winning a wild card game, but they never win in Foxborough. And right now, the Patriots have the tiebreaker. Pittsburgh has a really tough schedule, and Kansas City. I'm not going to say they can't. Titans did last year. We all know Andy Reid struggled in the playoffs in Kansas City, but I don't think the Texans are a Super Bowl contender until next year. Brian Gain has had a tremendous draft without first and second round picks. They're going to have a one and two twos, and they're going to have a lot of money under the cap. They'll have to start by re-signing their guys, but I'll guarantee you they got to, they got to fix their pass protection. They're doing a good job of run blocking, and Bill O'Brien, I think, is doing a, a great job of coaching. I saw a list this morning with Peter King and Florio listed eight Coach of the Year candidates, and O'Brien's name wasn't on it. I guess he was number nine. And what he has done in the after Buffalo, first of all against Dallas, they won in overtime, and, and Watson suffered the collapse, partially collapsed long, broken rib, and Bruce Sternum. In the next game against the Bills, he was sacked seven times and knocked down twelve. And their philosophy totally changed. In the last five games, they averaged. 34 yards, 34 carries, 169 yards, and Watson has not thrown more than 24 passes in any of those games. So the whole idea was to try to protect him and keep him upright because of pass protection. And O'Brien has adjusted. That's what I'm writing about for tomorrow. So I'm not saying he should be coach of the year, but I think he should be in the top eight. And I think this team is uh, they're taking advantage of their schedule. And they've got Cleveland coming in and then Indy. And 
these next two games look a whole lot more interesting than they did a month ago. Then they go to the Jets, they go to Philly and finish at home against Jacksonville. So I could see them finishing 11-5, maybe even 12-4, and four, and that's not going to, you know, maybe it'll get a first-round bye. They've never had a first-round bye, but I don't see them winning in Foxborough, even though they've come close the last two times they've been there before losing by 3-7. and seven. John, got to run, but thanks so much for joining us. Always. Thank you, guys, as always. I read your stuff daily, tweet every time I see something. Keep up the fantastic work. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, John. That was Hall of Fame voter John McLean of the Houston Chronicle. Up next, it's Hall of Fame semifinalist Darren Woodson. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Our next guest is one of the 25 semifinalists for the Pro Football Hall of Fame's Class of 2019. He's also one of the five safeties on the list. That's Darren Woodson of the Dallas Cowboys. Three-time Super Bowl champion with the Cowboys in the 1990s. Darren is in his 10th year of eligibility, though this is just his third trip to the semifinalists. But I'll be honest with you, from where we sit, after a one-year absence, he's back where he belongs. He went to five Pro Bowls. He retires the all-time leading tackler in Cowboys history. And most important, he's a returning Talk of Fame Network guest. Darren Woodson, welcome back. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate uh, having me on the show. It's always an honor to be uh, here. Right Darren, how concerned were you in 2018 when you disappeared from the list of semifinalists? Was there a fear that maybe the voters started to forget about Darren Woodson? I don't know if I had that fear. Um, I, I don't know if I, it would, I would go that far. I, I think, uh, you know, for the circumstances were and, and for the guys that were coming in, that you sort of – you know, every year, you know, a new crop of people that are coming in for the first ballot hall or what. So I don't you know. Was I afraid that I wasn't going to be back? Uh, yeah, in certain instances, I was. I was thinking, hey, listen, I'd like to get back out on the final list, but I don't know if I was, if I just totally doubted the fact that I would get back on the but uh, not being on the list, I can tell you this, it was not good. Uh, I know the family was calling me, and you know you get family and friends, the Chinese family and everyone else in your ear. Uh, and this is, you know, full crap, whatever, but hey, you know, it is what it is, and, and I've bought into the understanding of um, my time's going to come at some point, just don't know it. Well, you, well, you, in light of that, were you surprised uh, to see your name back on there on the list of 25 uh, uh, this year after that one year's absence? I mean, it, it, no, no, I wasn't. Not at all. I wasn't. No, I, I've always looked guys. I've always felt like, you know, for, for what I've done uh, in my football career, and, uh, the length of time that I played, multiple positions that I played, and you know the championships that I've won on good football teams, but you know, I always felt like you know I was deserving. To, to be a Hall of Famer. Um, I don't know if it was a first ballot or whatnot, but to be a Hall of Famer, I felt, I've always felt that way. So I've always had that confidence to know that you know, even with the names that are up there and the safeties, all the five safeties that are up there, um, I feel like you know, and this is just me being confident in my abilities. I match up with is greater or better than most. So I always felt like I always had the opportunity uh, to be back on that list, and it was just great to see my name back up there. 
Well, Darren, as I mentioned at the outset, you've been through this twice before. You were a semifinalist in 2015 and then again in 2017, but you never advanced to the finals. Now, you look at this list, it's a crowded safety slate. Um, the past finalists like Steve Atwater and John Lynch, first-time finalists Ed Reed and, and both Leroy Butler and yourself from the 1990s. Um, just wondering, what's your level of optimism this year? Uh, well, I got a little Jerry Jones in it. I'm forever off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> sitting on the Jones family, you will definitely understand that. So, uh, I, I'm optimistic. I, I'm, I'm forever. I, I, I feel well, guys. I mean, I think it you know, takes the athlete in me. Um, but that same optimism uh, is one next year with a couple of players that I played with and a guy that I really respect not only the football world but the business world and, and Roger Staubach who I model my you know uh, off the field you know, accolades off of him and what he's done I just he's one of my mentors but you know, he's always telling me to be optimistic about two opportunities and what they're doing in life. And, and I feel that, that way, you know, moving forward, whether it's in business, I'm very optimistic. I've grown a business, a real estate business. But I've always been optimistic as far as uh, knowing my, my capabilities and the things that have gone on in my life. I've always been a guy that's overcome a lot and you know, had to go through things. And it's, it's, the Hall of Fame is so different. It's, this is not... The, the road to the Hall of Fame is nothing new to my life. It really isn't. You know, I've, I've experienced a lot of ups and downs, and people have doubted me for the longest time, and I always found a way to get where I needed to be. And in this process, I, I feel the same way. I feel like I'm going through a process right now. A lot of naysayers, they say you don't deserve something you do deserve, and it's just a matter of time. Well, I will myself there. I'll find my way into the Hall of Fame. Darren, safety is the most underrepresented position in the hall, which is nine in Chinese. So how encouraging it has it been that the hall is trying to safety in each of the last two classes, Kenny Easley and Brian Dawkins. Does it appear the door has finally been cracked for safeties? Absolutely. And, you know, Kenny Easley, when, I, when, I, when Bill Parcells came to the Cowboys uh, in the early two, two, like 2003 or 2002, somewhere in there, uh, he came, he, he was on the field, and I, I remember him asking if I didn't Kenny Easley was. And uh, I'm sort of uh, somewhat of a historian of the game, but at the time my father was a big Kenny Easley fan. So, but yeah, I told him, oh, yeah, I know Kenny Easley. He said, man, he was one of the great ones. And that's, and when, I, when I heard the name, he said Kenny Easley and asked me that question, I thought, Kenny Easley is a Hall of Famer. You know, this was in 2002, you know. I, I just never have thought that Keith at that point was not a Hall of Fame. It would have just never crossed my mind. Because I always thought he was the body line. Keith and those guys were the first out of Hall of Fame. So I didn't know any different. But I think, you know, it's great to see Kenny go in. Uh, it's great to see my friend, Brian Dawkins, go in. Uh, and most deserve it. I, that, and hopefully that catalyst get us in. Start to you, know, you, you mentioned those other guys, Darren, uh, you know, and obviously there's good, some other good safeties on this list, and I'm certainly not uh, you know, asking you to say, well, yeah, I'm better than all these guys. Uh, but when you look at the list, uh, does it strike you at all uh, as we as voters sort of looking for some love, I guess, but does it strike you at all and say, geez, this is a hard job picking between all these guys. These are, you know, we're not, these, these, you know, 
you look at that list of safeties uh, th- that we have this year, I don't think you could dismiss any of them and say, well, that guy doesn't even belong in the conversation. So does it? Right. do you appreciate how hard it is uh, to pick between players like yourself and... Oh, absolutely, man. I, I, hey, listen, I, I don't, I, I don't envy you guys. I really don't. And I don't know this the numbers game because I've been so many. There's always there's been a lot of great players um, that are on that list, especially that top twenty-five list every year. So I don't envy any of you know, have to make that make those choices. I think there's some tough choices. I think there's some things you have to look into. I don't know if you always look into the stats. I mean, um, I don't, I don't know how you guys go through the process. Evaluating players, players in the nineties, the two thousand, if it's based on trash, talk to DM, or other head coaches, like guys and whatnot. But uh, if we, it's tough. So I, I look at a girl like like uh, Al and you think, yeah, you know, one of the most dominant players, um, you know, coming in like early early nineties or like late eighties, as far as you know, a big hitter, it's a big bruiser. It's a big that, that separated guys. One last quick question. We got about forty-five seconds left, uh, uh, Darren. Uh, you know, we had Atwater on here a while back, who I've known for a long time, and, <clears throat> and of course, he had the signature play. You know, that knockout shot on Christian Okoye, uh, and you know, Easy was a friend of mine back in the day when I was in Oakland. And he had a lot of those kinds of plays. If, if I said to you, "What is your signature play? What's the first play you're going to tell your grandchildren about?" On this day, I did X. Uh, what play would it be? <laughs> uh. You know, a signature play. I would say, look, I, 
I don't know if I have. I, I, I have multiple plays that I made. I mean, I did an interception in, uh, against Philadelphia that changed the tide and we ended up winning the NFC East uh, off that interception. Uh, it was a 90 some yard return. That was probably the one that, that stands out the most. That one, and, you know, there's a few other plays that are better in my mind. But, you know what? I, I think the biggest. The biggest confidence booster I ever had was uh, lining up against Jerry Rice in the NFC Championship game. And I'm covering him in the slot, and he came up to me and tapped me on the helmet. Um, during Right before the play started, before our first play, and he said, man, you do a damn good job coming down from a safety position to a, to a cornerback position, and they put your ass on me. I think that's, to me, that's like, that's like one of the biggest compliments that I ever had because it spoke volumes to my versatility. It spoke volumes to the confidence that Mike Zimmer kept on saying to me every day I covered at the corner position. And it spoke volumes to the work that I was putting in as far as a cover guy was, you know, being, you know, that Jerry Rice recognized it, the greatest wide receiver of all time, recognized the fact that, hey, man, you know, I'm going to kill you today. I'm going to murder you. <laughs> and, and, and I know you're playing me in the slot. But dude, you do a damn good job, and I thought, man, that's now that's that's respect, and I think that's that spoke volumes to the versatility that I had at the position, and I think that's what it's always been overlooked about you know me playing uh, the safety position. I only played safety on first down most of the time, but other than that, I was a second, third corner. So, uh, so that spoke volumes to me. I think that's the one thing that I I will always remember. Hey, Darren, how would you like to play Jerry Rice under today's rules? Oh. Oh, forget it. Forget about it. Can't touch <laughs> yeah, that's right. Can't touch him. At least I can have him to tackle him or try to tackle him at the line. They just don't wait nowadays. You know, you already know what the stats would be for the season. Targeted 250 <laughs> times, 250 catches. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, Darren, thanks so much for the time, and hopefully, hopefully, We'll hear your name called in January, but thanks so much. For man, I appreciate you guys. Thanks for having me on, man. Really, hey, Rick, thanks again man, for reaching out to me as well. Thanks, Darren. You got it. Thanks, Darren. That was Hall of Fame 75. Darren Woodson. Up next, it's the two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're almost out of time for the first half of the show, so Shay. Sound that whistle. That's the two-minute warning. That's right. It's time for the two-minute drill. And guess what? We got the Goose Man calling this week's plays. Goose, get us started. Bruce Arian says the only head coaching job he considers is the Browns. Your John Dorsey is Arian's on your short list. Only if he comes attached to Larry Fitzgerald. You better be on a list of one because they need a quarterback whisperer, and that guy whispers better than anybody. Chiefs, Patriots, and Rams remain the only three teams unbeaten at home this season. So which of the three owns the best home field advantage? Chargers. Haven't lost at home and never will. But that's what happens when you play 16 road games. <laughs> I don't know, Gooseman. You ever been to Arrowhead Stadium? By the time you leave there, you feel like you have an arrow in your head. <laughs> <laughs> Who has the best offense in the NFL? Chiefs, Rams, or Saints? <laughs> Chiefs. Comes attached to a tomahawk chop. I guess you have an arrow in your head, too. <laughs> I got to say the Saints, because they have the best and most experienced quarterback, and at that position, I believe in long resumes and longer memories. 
Bronze guy Leonard Fournette was ejected last weekend for fighting. Where has all the fight been all season for the Atlas Jaguars? Uh, that would be with every quarterback that Jalen Ramsey's trashed. <laughs> Unfortunately for them, their fight has been in their own locker room. Not good. When will the NFL start penalizing teams for delay of game as a result of a touchdown celebration? Uh, that'd be when the Bengals win a playoff game. I'd say never because touchdowns are the only thing they have left to celebrate. Russell Wilson, Brian Wilson, or Woodrow Wilson? I'd be Flip Wilson. Order in the court because he come to judge. He come to judge. <laughs> there is only one Wilson known as Mr. Excitement, and it's not these slappies. It's Jackie Wilson, the Titan of Soul. <laughs> <laughs> Lamar Jackson is now 2-0 as starting quarterback of the Ravens. Has it Baltimore officially turned the page in the Joe Flacco era? Well, they have until Lamar Jackson gets hurt, which means no. Exactly. He keeps running like he's a wishbone quarterback, and pretty soon they will break his wishbone. <laughs> the, the Jaguars have lost the league worst seven games in a row. When can we pencil in their next win? Um, sure. Um, when's their next preseason game? Exactly. <laughs> August 2019. Can't win <laughs> when you've already quit. That's the end of that. That's the end of our first hour, but don't go anywhere. Coming up in the second 60 minutes, we're going to have Hall of Fame semifinalist Darren Woodson, along with more of our 25 semifinalists and Borges or Bogus. So stay where you are. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network, where we'll sit down with Hall of Fame semifinalists Leroy Butler and dissect the 25 members of the class of 2019, at least so far, that is, as we count down to Atlanta. But first, a quick shout-out, guys, to Hall of Fame tight end Mike Ditka. As you know, he's recovering from a mild heart attack, and it was great to hear this week that he's out of the hospital and back home because, Ronnie, can't lose him. Nah, uh-uh, can't lose him. Not anytime no, soon. Cannot. Cannot lose that coach of that Bears. He's one tough hombre. <laughs> you know, we know that. Yes. Uh, the Bears. And, you know, I would say a heart attack is probably about the only mild thing about Mike Ditka. So I'm betting he'll be back and uh, barking very soon. Did you see J.J. Watt ragdoll Tennessee tight end John O. Smith in his pass rush the other night? <laughs> I did. He would not yeah. have ragdolled Mike Ditka. He was as complete a tight end as the NFL has <laughs> ever seen. A guy who could block as well as catch. Tight ends like that don't exist anymore. That's right. Mark hey, Pavaro, Goose, my pal Mike Pavaro called me up right after that play. He said, did you see that? I said, yeah. He said, that's not football. And he hung up. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. <laughs> he could tell you that every week. That's not football and hang up. Hey, uh, Gooseman, you have a favorite Ditka story? Yeah, the ESPN Magazine cover photo of Ricky Williams in a wedding dress and Mike Ditka in his tux. <laughs> tux. This after Ditka and the Saints trade their entire draft, move up to get the Heisman Trophy winner from Texas with a fifth overall pick. Can you imagine George Hallis, Vince Lombardi, Tom Landry, or Don Shula, much less Bill Belichick ever posing for that picture? <laughs> No. <laughs> hey, Ryan, you know the thing I love about him, and that's what Goose talked about, he's completely and unabashedly candid. I mean, he has no filter, has no off button, doesn't care what you think, he just calls him as he sees him. If you don't like it, well, you know what? Hit the road, Jack. Exactly right. My kind of guy, Mike Ditka is. Uh, you, know, <laughs> I, you, you guys know me a long time. Pulling punches is overrated. Vastly overrated. Causes more confusion than anything else. And if there's one thing about Ditka, you are never confused of where he stands or where he stands on you. And if you are confused, tell him, and he'll make sure you're not no longer confused. That's, that's right. You know you what, got Goose, that, I'm Clark? Not... You understand that, Clark? That's right. 
<laughs> hey, Goose, I, I'm not a Saturday Night Live fan. I can't, it's, it's too late for me, but I got to admit, I love those Ditka segments they did with Norm of Tears. Da Bears. Da Bears. Da Bears. That was back when Saturday Night Live was actually entertaining. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, Iron Mike, we're thinking of you. Get well and get back. Then get on our show, would you please? You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey guys, I'm not sure how I forgot to mention this, but how about the U.S. landing a rover on Mars? A space rover landed on Mars. I mean, it took that spaceship or shuttle, whatever you guys call it, I don't know, uh, almost seven months to travel 300 million miles, and then it stuck to landing on Mars after reducing its speed from 12,300 miles per hour to zero in six minutes. That's wow. unreal, Goose. Okay, the best rover I ever saw was George Webster at Michigan State. <laughs> oh, <geez>. Spartacus! <laughs> that that, that said, it, it, hold it, it took Chris Carson about three seconds to stick his land on last week against Carolina Panthers. Did you see that land? Yeah, I, I did see that. That was pretty and good. Then he kept running. Yeah, kept that was running. pretty good. Yeah. Should be on the gymnastic team. Well, speaking of the NFL, Ron, uh, is there anything there to equate with what we just saw uh, You know, on Mars? I mean, maybe the Browns winning something like two games in a year or Jalen Ramsey shutting up. What do you got? I got one thing. Lamar Miller becoming the only runner in NFL history to twice have 97-yard touchdown runs, including that one Monday night against the Titans, allegedly top-rated yeah. defense. Didn't take him seven months to get to the end zone either. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, have you guys, let me ask you, I mean, speaking of this, this uh, rover, I mean, have you seen the photos? Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're, they're mm-hmm. clear, and, and they're really, they're astounding. You know, Ron, kind of makes me want to reach for a Mars bar. Um, Gooseman, how soon before the NFL looks at those photos and says, yeah, you know what, maybe we should put a franchise there? <laughs> I think it could be a while, because I expect Jerry Jones already owns the terrestrial rights to several of the planets. <laughs> he might. Clarky, they can't even put a game in Azteca Stadium, let alone a franchise on Mars. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know what? Mars makes putting a franchise in London, forget about Azteca Stadium, makes it almost seem feasible, Goose. Oh, I'd rather see the NFL put teams in Portland and San Antonio before London. Ooh, San Antonio, yes. Yeah, Portland, River Portland, Walk. Maine. I like that. Oh, no. Portland, Maine. Yeah, there we go. Uh, Portland, Oregon, home of the Timbers, yeah. Um, listen, I, I guess one reason I got so excited about this, I'll be honest with you, was I saw the movie First Man two weeks ago. And as you know, it's a story of Neil Armstrong going to the moon. And uh, first of all, have you guys seen it, Ron? Yeah, tremendous. Have, Goose, you seen it? Nope, not yet. Oh, you should. It, it's a marvelous picture. And it really took me back to the summer of 1969 when we saw those images of Neil Armstrong on the moon that we look up at every night. And, and I'll be honest with you, it just seemed like a dream when you were looking at that. I'm like, nah. This can't be happening, you know, and I, I feel somewhat the same here. I mean, even though there are no humans on Mars, at least yet, Ron. No, that's true. It's a Life Imitates Art 2001, the Space Odyssey is now upon us. I know you're yeah. planning to disconnect me. Hal? Hal? <laughs> Where did you get that idea, Hal? I could yeah, see but... your lips move. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Al, Al, the greatest scene in history. It, it, it was. It was kind of scary. I thought it um, was very scary. Hey, uh, Goose, do you remember where you were when Armstrong walked down the moon? And people always ask, "Where were you when Kennedy was was killed?" And everyone, I think, our vintage remembers that. But do you remember where you were when Neil Armstrong walked down the moon? Yep, I was home watching on television. It was my older brother Tom's birthday. In the middle of the night. Yeah, yeah we we got to watch it. Yeah. Oh, how about oh, you, historic Ron? like that? 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. Today you just DVR it, but uh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) I was actually I was been shingling a roof all day with my dear old dad, uh, which was the highest I wanted to be until I saw him step off that thing onto the moon, and I said, "Wow, yeah, yeah, I need to do that." Yeah, unreal. As as I said, it's just hard to believe. That's about the coolest thing you can think of. Yeah, absolutely. And it's whatever cool thing you did, Clark, which I'm sure you did a couple cool things in your day. No comparison. That I'm doing a cool thing right now. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. Well, that's true. That's almost like cool. stepping on the moon. Yeah. Stepping yeah. in something. It's hard to believe. It. That's almost 50 years ago. I mean, it's wow. God almighty. Wow. Um, anyway, let, let's segue to the NFL. And, no, and cool. Before we go, that's, can that's I tell you one, one fast thing, Clark? I think I mentioned this to you. Be my guest. I took my son to the Johnson Space Center, and they still have the room there where they were monitoring everything. You know, And they told us at that time, hold up your cell phone if you've got a cell phone. So anybody got an iPhone? He said, yes. Yeah. So we're holding up all these iPhones. And the guy said, there's more computer power in one iPhone than yeah. they, they had to put a guy on the moon. Yeah, I've heard that. That's yeah, unbelievable. That's, it is good. unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Wow. Um, now my son well, could do it with his phone. Well, I'll tell you what we're going to do with this phone. We're going to go to the NFL. I'm going to ask you a little segue here. It's a little bit of a reach, but that's what we do here. Uh, when was that wow moment that you experienced then watching the NFL? Now, basically seeing something that you couldn't believe. I mean, uh, for me, it was, honestly, it was Christmas break, 1972, when I was watching the Steelers and Raiders. Your Raiders won in an AFC playoff game. You remember it. So does everyone. The Raiders had it won, or so I thought. I'm watching on TV, and I'll never forget that last-second desperation pass. Goose, I think it was to Frenchie Fuqua. I'm not sure, but Ricochet's and... Um, and then I see Franco run down the field scoring and wondering, what the heck just happened? I mean, didn't have sophisticated replay those days. So you simply see a pass broken up and someone running with a ball down the sidelines. I didn't get it until I realized I just witnessed an immaculate reception. <laughs> it made no sense. And, Ron, I don't think it makes any sense to the Raiders today either. No, that's because he still hasn't made that reception. But that's all right. Well, you know, that's the, what do they call it, water under the bridge or whatever. But same se- season, different play. One where the guy actually did catch the ball. Clarence Davis's sea of hands catch that beat Miami in the divisional yeah. playoffs in muddy conditions in Oakland. Two things about that. Clarence Davis had the worst hands of anybody <laughs> in history. As Parcells used to say, I wouldn't hire him to work in a glass factory. That was Clarence, but he made the catch. But here's the other thing. After the game was over, the Dolphins are walking off the field, and, and Brady, Brady fans are all over the field, and one of them punches Nick Bonacani in the stomach as he runs by. Manny Fernandez sees him and forearms the guy in the face. K.O. Manny. <laughs> hey, Goose, how about your wow moment? Well, this is going to be repetitious, but the 62 Thanksgiving game, Lions yeah. dismantled oh, yeah. Lombardi's best team. Packers had 11 Hall of Famers, brought a 10-0 record into the game. Left with their only loss this season. What the Lions did was illogical. 11 sacks plus a touchdown and safety on defense. That's the first time I bought into the concept on any given Sunday, even though the game was played on the Thursday. Well, there's the signal that we're about to hear. Another wow moment. Yes, sir, we're in for another one. That's because it's time for Bogus or Borges. Borges or Bogus. <laughs> With our Ron Borges. Bogus or Borges. Borges or Bogus. What is it? I don't know. It's a screed. That's what I know it is, Ron. Take it away. Well, the, com- the combatants hadn't yet even finished exchanging jerseys, kneeling in group prayer, high-fiving, dapping, and doing whatever else has to be done before they go into showers. And the Chiefs-Rams uh, game, 54-51, had been declared instant classic by every dude with a microphone and great hair from westerly Rhode Island to western Samoa. Barely a week later, Charger quarterback Phillip Rivers is making a mockery of what the Arizona Cardinals claimed past for pass defense. 
in a 45 to 10 victory, and that was cue up the drum roll, instant classic. The chattering class may call such performances instant classics. I call them bogus. If you can complete 25 passes in a row, as Rivers did last Sunday, and 96.55% of your throws, which translates to 28 and 29, Clark, if you're doing the math, it's not classic. It's a corruption of the game. Now, I do not say this to demean Philip Rivers, longtime friend of the show and a great quarterback. It is just to point out that his record was nearly broken barely 24 hours later by Marcus Mariota, who is not a great quarterback. <laughs> that guy completed 95.7% of his 23 throws, 22 of 23, and he lost to the Texans. Did you get that? Lost, Gooseman. Instant classic. Instant classic. Bogus. Last season, Drew Brees set the all-time single-season accuracy record at 72%. He's already ahead of that pace this year at 76.4, and there are three other quarterbacks over 70%. Five of the top six single-season accuracy marks were posted in the past three years, and only three quarterbacks prior to to this decade ever posted 70% accuracy rate. Well, were they all blind? Many will say today's passes are the most accurate in football history, and they have the stats to prove it. But I say stats are not bona fide. They're bogus. You want to know who the most accurate passer was? Sammy Baugh in 1945, 70.2% throwing a watermelon. Unbelievable. He never came close to 70% again, and neither did anybody else for 37 years until Kenny Anson did it. It took 37 years for Sammy Baugh's accuracy record to be broken. Drew Brees' is going to last 365 days if he's lucky. I guess that's the definition of instant classic today when it comes to passing performances. It only lasts for an instant, and that's bogus. Ron, how many first ball Hall of Famers are quarterback in the NFL today? Well, there's going to be a bunch of because of the numbers, but if you ask me, there's probably... Two, maybe three, probably three. I mean, but it's unbelievable. How are you going to? How are we going to shuffle through all these guys? Everybody's completing seventy percent of their throws. I have no idea, idea, Ron. But I will tell you this: we're shuffling to an ad right now. We got to go to break. Up next, it's the Hall of Fame's class of nineteen of two thousand nineteen semifinalists. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, like everyone else, I see where Jacksonville not only benched Blake Bortles this week, but fired its offensive coordinator in Goose. You're our history expert. I can't remember a year where there's been this many firings of coaches, so I'm going to ask you, head coaches and assistants, um, by the 12th week. I mean, you look at Arizona, they got rid of their offensive coordinator. The Browns, uh, they dumped their head coach in OC. Tampa, yep, dumped defense coordinator Mike Smith. Cincinnati got rid of Terrell Austin. I mean, wh- what's going on? I mean, this is all happening by the 12th week. What's going on, Goose? Well, the NFL should be the NPL, the No Patience League. When you charge what the NFL charges for tickets, parking, and concessions, Losing is not an option for these owners. That means there will be heads on a platter during the season and a line at the head coaching guillotine at year's end. Yeah. When does Condoleezza Rice get an interview? <laughs> Condoleezza Rice. Yikes. Yeah. Well, I mentioned that Terrell Austin firing Ronnie, and um, that opened the door for Hugh Jackson's return. And. Um, you saw what happened. What happened when Cleveland and Baker Mayfield well, yes, came did. to town? Saw Hugh Jackson. Um, Ron, can we honestly believe that Hugh Jackson is going to succeed Marvin Lewis when he steps down? Uh, I mean, which I believe has to be after the season. I mean, Hugh Jackson or Condoleezza Rice? To me, it's sort of a six and one half dozen other. What, what, what's going on there? Well, I got to tell you, if I was advising Mike Brown 
or if Mike Browns has eyes to see, as my father would say, and he watched that Baker Mayfield reaction to Jackson coming yeah. up to shake his hand. I mean, he looked at Jackson like the traitor or opportunist that many thought he was when he was with the Raiders, frankly. And then he ripped him a new one as a disloyal guy uh, who made the choice to go to work for one of their divisional opponents. Uh, you know, I took one look at Mayfield and I thought, who wants to hire a guy whose former players look at him like that? Yeah, this guy's just a right. kid from Oklahoma. Yeah. And that's, to me, part of what made it really truthful. There was a just a, you know, only the truth, of the, it was the truth of youth. You know, none of the political BS. It's like, get yeah. away and from me, Baker, you disloyal. And Baker Mayfield got shredded on social media for saying that. Yeah, yeah. yeah you wouldn't want to tell the truth. I mean, yeah, no, why no, would we no, do that? No, in this day and age. Uh, it, remember, it's the misinformation age. So <laughs> says dictionary.com. Hey, um, if you guys had to hire someone, um, speaking of, you know, next coaches, maybe in Cincinnati, if you had to hire someone tomorrow to guide your team, and let's say it's Tampa or the Jets or Cincinnati, um, because I can't imagine those coaches surviving. Goose? Who would you choose? Eric Bieniemy. Yeah. He's the offensive coordinator of the Chiefs. The NFL has hired away Andy Andy Reid's offensive coordinator in two of the last three years. The Eagles hired Doug Peterson in 2016. The Bears hired Matt Nagy in 2018. Peterson's already won a Super Bowl, and Nagy's a front-runner for NFL Coach of the Year with what he's doing in Chicago this season. Andy Reid can identify coaching talent and develop it, and that makes Eric Bieniemy a safe bet. I like it. Ron, good can one. you top that? <laughs> Probably not, but uh, um, I would hire David Shaw from Stanford. I mean, he's consistently one in a hard place to, to do it year in year. He's won 75% of his games there. He was an NFL assistant for nine years. Uh, his dad was a longtime NFL assistant. He worked for Bill Waltz. He worked for Dennis Green. He worked for John Harbaugh. He worked for Jim Harbaugh as his offensive coordinator. And he's only 46, so he speaks to the, uh, uh, to the youthful side of the game. Uh, he's a tremendous offensive coach. Uh, you know, relates well with uh, with uh, players. He's very bright. Uh, if I was going to take a chance, that's the direction I'd go. Well, Ron, I'm glad you mentioned Jim Harbaugh because I'm wondering, uh, y- you guys think he's going to be in play for someone next year in the NFL? Uh, well, after what happened last weekend against Ohio State, you better be worried about staying in play at Michigan. To tell you the truth, I mean, it's hard. You give up 62 points to Ohio State, and you're the Michigan coach. Uh, you know, the survival rate of people like that is, as my dad would say, zero. So. <laughs> After watching the Ohio State, Ohio State game, it's where's David Shaw when you really need him? <laughs> there you go. Okay, well, listen, you don't actually have to choose anyone. Not with head coaches, you don't. But all of us do have to choose 15 finalists this month for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And first things first, I'm not going to ask you to reveal your picks so you can relax. But I will ask you this, and Goose, let's start with you because you've been doing this over 20 years. What's the most difficult part of this process? And I guess I mean going from semifinalists to finalists. I think it's leaving the names of 10 Hall of Fame-worthy candidates off the ballot each year in the cut from 25 to 15. I'll probably only vote one wide receiver, yet there are three deserving of discussion as finalists. Mm-hmm. Isaac Bruce, Torrey Holt, Heinz Ward. Two of them will probably be left behind. Uh, one more year as the clock continues to tick down in their modern era of eligibility. And the bottom line for me is that there are too many deserving candidates and too few seats at the table. Yeah, no, no, I agree. And uh, Ron, uh, before we go farther, I'm going to give Goose a break here because uh, he does this every year on this program. But I'm going to ask you to explain to our listeners 
just how the process goes from here on out? Because a lot of them, frankly, don't understand. Um, you're going to make a presentation on behalf of Ty Law in uh, February. I mean, if he makes it as a finalist, which presumably I think is a foregone conclusion. But if you can, tell people what happens from here, beginning with we've all got our ballots, we've got them in the mail, but what happens from here until the day before the Super Bowl when we vote? Well, uh, the panel now has to uh, vote to reduce the 25 uh, semifinals to a, f- uh, a final number of 15 plus ties, which has to be done uh, by the uh, early December. And then the 48 voters uh, will fend off the politicians and the talking heads for a month or so about this guy and that guy should be in and what a criminal would be, you'll be if you don't put him in. And then we meet the day before the Super Bowl this year in Atlanta. Uh, all-day meeting. Each of the finalists, as well as the senior and contributor nominees, will be presented, discussed, and debated. Senior uh, and contributor categories are voted on separately first. Then we go one by one through the 15 finalists. Uh, we'll cut down then to 10, and then cut down once again to a final six or less. And you need 80% of the votes to be inducted, which is the highest bar of any sports Hall of Fame. It's one of the things I love about the Football Hall of Fame. Uh, then the voters leave the room. We get abused verbally and in print for two or three weeks. Because, you know, somebody being wrongfully denied their right to be in the Hall of Fame. Can you believe it? Uh, but that's uh, that's the process, and we like it. Gooseman? Sounds good to me, Ron. <laughs> Thank you. Goose likes the being abused part in particular. Goose just put the exclamation point on it. <laughs> okay. Um, Goose, you have 11 players who have been finalists before, but there are 15 spots. I'm talking about the modern era spots. What's the over-under on this group, and I'm talking about the 11 players, on this group making it to another cut? I think they're all likely to be back with the possible two exceptions. I don't see more than one coach in the finals. So Don Corio, Jimmy Johnson, Tom Flores all are in jeopardy. And I also lack the confidence that Atwater and Lynch both make it uh, at safety. Ed Reed will, uh, will make everyone forget that the NFL even plays safety before the year 2000. <laughs> Uh, you know, I doubt they'll all make it. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure they won't, in fact. Uh, some have been uh, there a number of times uh, already and not advanced. And, I, and a few others uh, we saw go backwards a little bit last year, and that's u- usually not a great sign. For, yeah, John Lynch. Uh, yeah, John Lynch being one of them. Um, uh, those, to me, would be the most vulnerable holdovers, those guys who seem to be backing up a little bit. But but you never know. The voters can surprise you. You know, I've, I was surprised by some of the names uh, that made it to 25. Yeah, well, I, I was surprised when Jason Taylor was the first ballot Hall of Famer. Uh, and I think all <laughs> well, of us were. No, I was stunned. I was in yeah, pain. Yeah. I was ready to kill somebody. But so it goes. Well, <laughs> um, when you look at this list at linebacker, you have no one who's been a finalist before. Right. Sam Mills, not Carl Mecklenburg. That's not good. Zach Thomas, and not Clay Matthews. So, Ron, you say that's good. In your opinion, do any of these guys make it to the final 15? Well, I mean, uh, I would like to love to see at least two of them make it. I think it's a tough call, though, because uh, uh, you can make a strong case really for any of them. And the problem with that is when you have four guys, uh, you know, they tend to negate each other. You know, they, they okay, I like I like this player. I like Clay Matthews and, and, and Goose like Mecklenburg and, and uh, Clark like Zach Thomas and we all like Sam Mills. and uh, You know, so you end up. I vote for this guy, and you vote for that guy, and nobody ends up getting enough uh, of the votes to move forward. So uh, that, to me, is the danger there, but I think that they're all guys who I'd love to see in that room at some point in time. You know, I'd like to see Mecklenburg and Matthews because they've waited the longest. This is Mecklenburg's 20th year, and Matthews 18. 
But I think the guy with the best shot to get through is Zach Thomas because it's the latest is the greatest mentality. Yeah, yeah you're probably right about that. Um, well, Goose, you mentioned the head coaches earlier. Um, Don Coriel and Jimmy Johnson have been finalists. In fact, Don was a top 10 finalist in 2016. But Tom Flores hasn't been. In, in fact, he's never yeah. been a semifinalist before. The odds, I think, are stacked against coaches, by and large, because uh, they're going against so many players. So, Goose, who makes it? You mentioned you thought one coach. Who makes it, if any of these guys did? Well, Ron touched on this with the linebacker. I think all three have voting blocks. I think most voters won't vote more than one coach, and therein lies the problem. The three may split the, the board and knock each other out in the cut to 15. You may have none. Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly the problem that they face. Uh, uh, Coriel seems to me to be a guy who has always have enough votes to get into the room, but not enough to get out of the room. Uh, yeah. Personally, I'd like to see a new face uh, in there. I'd like to see Flores in there. Because, uh, frankly, of the three, the, the one who you can't write the history of pro football without is Tom Flores. I mean, not because he won two Super Bowls, although that's important, uh, but as you guys know, he was a trailblazer. He was the first Hispanic to start at quarterback in pro football. He was the first Hispanic head coach, the first Hispanic and first minority uh, head coach uh, to win the Super Bowl. Uh, he's also one of only two guys to ever reach a Super Bowl as a player, assistant coach, and head coach. And who was the other guy? guy we talked about, the coach himself, Mike Ditka. That's a yep. pretty strong resume. Um, lastly, we have three first-year eligibles, as most people know, who should be slam dunks for the Final 15, and that's Tony Gonzalez, Ed Reed, and Champ Bailey. But then it's wide open. Uh, Goose, does that make it easier or harder for you to make out this month's ballot? Oh, I, I never have problems making out. There are 25 worthy candidates. Any group of 15 is a worthy slate. You know, I, I lean to the older guys when I uh, vote. You know, the clock is ticking down on them, but... Uh, I, I don't have a problem going from 25 to 15. You're going to have a good, a good slate of 15. Okay, well, good luck, guys, both of you. And, Ron, uh, by the way, no peeking over Goose's shoulder, okay? You're on your own. <laughs> Still ahead. One of those 25 semifinalists, that'd be former Green Bay safety Leroy Butler. He's coming up on the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, a year ago, former Packers safety Leroy Butler reached the Hall of Fame's list of semifinalists for the first time. And we put him on the show. Now, one year later, he's back on the ballot as a second-time semifinalist. And he's agreed to join us again. And Leroy, here's hoping you go farther than you did last year. Thanks again, again, for joining us. Well, I appreciate it. Cause I, you have to think about when you're in Wisconsin, you don't necessarily have the platform sometimes to talk to different voters or fans. So it's an honor to be on the show with you guys. Well, it's an honor to have you on here, Leroy. And, and last year, I know when we talked to you, you were overwhelmed to be among the semifinalists. So this year, you're back as a second-time semifinalist. Um, as surprised as you were last year or as elated as you were last year? Oh, that's a good question. I think this year uh, I'm more elated because last year I didn't get a chance to enjoy it. I think I was just caught up on trying to be a finalist. I really didn't get a chance to say, you know what, it's a lot of great players on this particular list, and just to be one of the 25 is remarkable, and I need to celebrate that. So I, I, now I get a chance to enjoy it. Hopefully I can be a finalist one day, but at the same time, um, for the next few weeks, it feels really good. 
Well, as most Packers fans know, and actually most football fans should know, you're in the Packers Hall of Fame. I think you were chosen in 2007. And now you're up for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But someone you know and someone you played with, that would be Hall of Famer Brett Favre. He was on our program once telling us that, you know what, the Hall really isn't all that important to me. It's just icing on the cake to my career. So how about you? How significant is this to you, and what would it mean to you to make it to Canton? I think it would be the pinnacle of my life. Uh, I mean, this is what I wanted to do my whole career. You know, I'm an African-American from the inner city, single parent, growing up um, disabled. Um, this is this would be everything. I mean, everybody plays for a championship. But I think deep down inside, only a few people get a chance to be in the Hall of Fame. It, it would mean everything to me. Matter of fact, it was something me and my mom talked about I uh, back my seventh year in the league. And she said, well, you have to win a championship first. Everything else will take care of itself. So it would mean the world to me. Matter of fact, it would be the, like, the, the one thing on your bucket list is just that. It's just the Hall of Fame. There's nothing else on my bucket list is just the Hall of Fame. Lord, there are only nine for pure safeties enshrined in the hall, as you know. Can enshrined the ninth one last year in Brian Dawkins. My question to you is yep. this. Is there enough room in the hall for two safeties from the city of Jacksonville? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I don't mind being number two. <laughs> I love Brian Dawkins. As a matter of fact, when he got in, it felt like I got in. I love the guy, everything he stood for. I love the way he played the game. Because I really felt like the more people like Brian to get an opportunity would bring more light to me. But I think how I separate myself is I'm a selfish guy in a way, but I think that makes me unselfish, especially at the safety position. So anytime a safety goes in, just like Kenny Easley going in to me, it makes me get a step closer. You know, some people may not know this, but you invented the Lambeau Leap. Shouldn't that qualify you for discussion, given how much it's changed touchdown celebrations in Green Bay and everywhere? (laughs) I think that's a fantastic question, probably the best one I've ever been asked all day. I, I, I think it shows that I played for one team, in my opinion, the best fan base, and that I think I proved that the crappy seats are the 50-yard line seats, not the north and south end zone. <laughs> got to get into end zone seats. Until then, nobody wanted to sit in the end zone. So just that alone, I should be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> That's perfect. Now, we tell uh, uh, guys like yourself all the time, uh, Leroy, that you have to be patient. Uh, you know, it's a long process, blah, blah, blah. Only 1% of the players get in. Now, you've waited 12 years just to be a, uh, before you finally became a semifinalist. Uh, how difficult is it to remain patient and list, sort of listen to that kind of advice without, uh, you know, jumping over the table and saying, "No, you be patient. <laughs> I want to yeah. get in." Yeah, I, I understand it, and I understand also that it's a process that I think it's a privilege just to be talked about. Do you know how many players have ever played this game? So to even be a semifinalist to me is remarkable. And I know, trust me, I get it. I see guys, you know, you compare guys against each other, look at numbers. But for me, I always thought eventually that if I ever get talked about, I think I have a chance because I did something not a lot of safeties would do, and that was cover people. I covered tight ends, running back to wide receivers. Not a lot of safeties did that. But until I can get in that room to have that discussion, they'll say, well, he's just another good safety but not great. 
One thing I always found fascinating about you, and, and probably a lot of uh, our listeners around the country don't know this, but uh, a part of your childhood was spent overcoming some difficult physical problems uh, with your legs. Your legs were in braces, and I believe for a while uh, you, you were in a wheelchair undergoing some therapy. Uh, can you tell us a little bit uh, about that and just how far uh, it, a trip it's been from that kid to being a guy talked about in the Hall of Fame? Uh, I really appreciate you asking that because I was, I was my mom was a single parent. Um, I was four years old. Matter of fact, I had the same braces as Forrest Gump. I was Forrest Gump before Tom Hanks. <laughs> and I told my mom, sitting in a wheelchair, I said, Mom, I want to play in the NFL and get you out of the projects. And she told me I can do whatever I want to do, be whatever I want to be. But she said, be a leader, not a follower. We were at one of the poorest um, places in Jacksonville, Florida, poverty-stricken. I was in special education, couldn't read. Kids picked on me for not having you know, new clothes. And I used to tell kids all the time, listen, all you guys going to want my autograph. I'm going to be famous one day. And I thought meeting Bobby Bowden, to me, was the biggest thing of my life. When I went to college, he was bigger than life. And I remember Coach Bobby Bowden saying to me, you can play in the NFL. And after that... My life has been something remarkable for any kid out there to say you're too small or you can't do something because you don't have both of your parents. I have something called the Butler versus Bullying Campaign to teach kids if you're bullied like I was. It doesn't matter. You just put your blinders on and you concentrate on being a leader. And eventually, eventually, God is good and you'll get your opportunity. And that's all I've thought about my whole life was planning in the NFL to get my mom out of the projects. Well, Lamar, just wondering, if you were Forrest Gump before Tom Hanks, how come you weren't up for an Oscar? <laughs> I know, right? What is going on? <laughs> yeah, but you know what, yeah. though? You know what? The Hall of Fame will be my Oscar. There you go. There you, there go. you go. <laughs> well, I want you to talk about that, if you could, um, because if you look at this list, I'm sure you have, um, there are eight yep. defensive backs and five safeties among the semifinalists. And I'm going to give you this chance um, to really make a case for yourself. Maybe we did a year ago, but I want to give you a chance right now to make a case for yourself and to ask you this. If you were standing up front of voters like us today, what would you tell them to convince them to give your candidacy a chance to be heard in Atlanta? I would say well, this guy was here before Brett Favre. He was here before Reggie White. He was here before Mike Holmgren and Ron Wolf. So he saw the good and the bad. He had four or five different coaches, coordinators, but he would play good through all the ups and downs. And again, when I played safety, if it was a team that had a tight end, if a coach went up to my defensive coach went up and said, we're going to play cover two and let the tight end be covered by a linebacker, I would get up in that classroom and say, no, that's my guy. If it was a good running back, I want to cover him. If it was a third down receiver in the slot, I want to cover him. And I never backed down from challenges. And I played the position under six feet, under 200 pounds, but played as if I was taller and bigger than anybody. And I just don't want people to think in the 90s it was just Brett Favre and Reggie White. It was one more player on that team that was significant of bringing the player, bringing the Packers back from 30 years of misery of not going to the Super Bowl when they won the first two Super Bowls and going again in 1996 and 97. Well, you talked about interceptions. 
you had 38 in your career. What was your favorite interception? Oh, I got that easy. It was just at home, <laughs> at home, playing against San Diego. I don't want to call out the quarterback's name, <laughs> but I intercepted the pass, went 90 yards, and I was on running the last 50 yards. I say, so this is what it's like to be a receiver. Man, I'm playing the wrong position. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that. I'll never, ever, ever forget that. I said that to myself. So this is what it's like playing wide receiver. <laughs> Maybe I'm playing the wrong position. I had so much fun with it. <laughs> Speaking of that and wide receivers, what do you make of today's uh, game? We were just uh, uh, making fun of it on the show. You know, guys completing 96% of their passes in a game, and and, uh, and a night oh. later, the guy nearly breaks his rec- that record 24 hours later. I mean, what do you make of it uh, when you watch the game today? You know, I'm so glad somebody asked me this because I tweeted after the Rams, uh, when the Rams played Kansas City, I want to throw up when two teams are in the 50s. You know, I, I just, I love what Phillip Rivers did, you know, connecting on this first 25, but where is the defense? And you have to understand that you can't be a hitter anymore. You have to be a tackler. And it just, to me, it's just so far you between the defenses of the 90s, the Dallas Cowboys, the San Francisco, even our defense in the 90s was the number one defense. You just don't see that anymore. It's a pass-happy league, and quarterbacks put up these fantasy numbers every week. And I just, and I'm the only guy in the room saying, where's the defense? And everybody looks at me like, shut up. <laughs> yeah, because they're all rooting for their fantasy football players, Leroy. Right? There you go. That's yeah. exactly right. But you know, yeah, I would love to see more defense. So would we. I mean, you, you look at, and, and uh, we were talking about this earlier, you know, that Philip Rivers, he missed, what, one pass, right? The week before, Amazing. Manning missed, missed, what, one pass. He was 17 of 18. And then this Monday, Marcus Mariota misses, what, one pass. I mean, three times in the last two weeks, quarterbacks <laughs> have missed one pass in one game. I, I would have said, you know, years ago, that's astounding. Now it's commonplace. It's not unusual. It's commonplace. It really is. And I think that we've always said in the OTAs and the offseason, the offense is normally ahead of the defense. But in training camp, the defenses are starting to catch up. But even when you hire coaches, the defensive-minded coaches don't get the jobs anymore. It's the, it's the offensive-minded coaches to see can you outscore people every week. But ultimately, ultimately, if you want to win a Super Bowl or play in a Super Bowl, you got to play great defense in December. And I think that's when you'll start to see these teams separate themselves. Why do you think people love the Chicago Bears? Their defense scores touchdowns, and they got Khalil Mack, and they're they're in first place. That's not a that's not a mistake. They're in first place with that good defense. Well, we got about 30 seconds here. Quick question. What is harder, playing defense in today's NFL or waiting on that call from Canton? <laughs> oh, waiting on that call. <laughs> I, I do know this. One day it will ring, and I'm going to match it on the first ring. <laughs> well, Lori, thanks so much for the time, and, and good luck waiting for that call. We, we hope you get it. We'll I really appreciate it, guys. I can't thank you guys enough for giving me the platform. Thanks so much. <laughs> That was former Packers safety Lori Butler, 2019 semifinalist for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Up next, the two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Okay, Shay, once more with feeling. Let's hear that whistle. 
That's the two-minute warning. That's right. It's the two-minute drill coming up with the Goose Man calling this week's place. Goose, get it started once again. The Saints have won a league-best 10 games in a row. When can we pencil in their next loss? That'd be December 17th at Carolina. Book it. Up. I, I can't believe this. I agree. Except I thought it was December, except I thought it was December 12th. <laughs> it's in December when they play at Carolina. <laughs> the Jaguars fired offense coordinator Nathaniel Hackett and bench quarterback Blake Bortles after that loss in Buffalo. Will that solve all that ails the Jaguars? No, but moving out of this country might. What I think they should have done, actually, was fire Blake Bortles and bench Nathaniel Hackett. He at least must have some function down there. <laughs> Arizona cut two starters, Andre Smith and cornerback Benet Benawerski, after it's lost the Chargers. Does that solve all that ails the Cardinals? Uh, no. Bruce Arians, where are you? <laughs> He's in car 54. Uh, I would say this. With, this. with the players they got, they should cut two scouts a week. <laughs> Is there anyone else that needed or deserved to be fired by the NFL this week? Yes, sir. Hugh Jackson, again. <laughs> I would say yes. You should fire whoever decided that there is no point wherein too much offense is too much offense. One minute. Rookie Phil Lindsay ranked seventh in the NFL in rushing, averaging league, league best five, eight yards carry. How does a player like that go undrafted at the University of Colorado? Uh, easy, Goose. Nobody looks at Colorado film anymore, unless, of course, it's in Telluride. I did a lot of research on this, Goose. I went to the medical tents of 32 teams and found a sty in the eye of each general manager. They were blind. <laughs> Marvin Lewis, Marvin Gaye, Marvin Hamlish, or Marvin Albert? Lee Marvin, and the man who shot Liberty Valance. Marvin the Clown, who was on the Bengals shortlist for next head coach. <laughs> What's worse, Mike McCarthy winning only one Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers? Or Don Shula winning none with Dan Marino. That'd be Shula. Won a lot of big games, Goose, but lost a lot, too. That's right. Shula, because he knew how to play and win without a quarterback, and he picked the players to surround Marino. It was his fault. That's the end of the game. Yeah, that's right. We'd like to thank Darren Woodson, Leroy Butler, and John McLean for joining us, Shay Raftis for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to listen to this or any podcast, just go to our website, thebeatalkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, you can look for us next week at this time and at this station.